We want to give our attention today to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 is our text for today. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Lord, as we come before these words that you have spoken, we ask that you will make our hearts soft, that we will grasp with amazement what you have accomplished in our lives in saving us. Guard us from the temptation, really the lie, that we would be, uh, that we are um, marginalized, that we are on the fringes. Lord, we ask this because of your greatness and because you have spoken these words to us, to your people this morning for our comfort and our understanding. Amen. All right. Well, you probably have realized that the world that we live in and our culture increasingly thinks that the Christian faith is insignificant, that it is an ancient bunk. Now, that's not everybody, and I think that our media and I mean that not just the news and what you see on TV. I mean the internet and, and writings, publications, all kinds of things. Every form of media would try to convince Christians that Christianity is no longer significant. Christianity is a dying thing. I want to share with you a few thoughts from some of our greatest critics those who criticize Christianity down through the centuries. Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. This is Voltaire. Voltaire was a French philosopher in the 18th century and author and critic of religion and Christianity. How about this one? Christianity will doubtless still survive in the earth 10 centuries hence, stuffed and in a museum. Who's that sound like? This is Mark Twain, which is a certain source of sadness for me because I love reading Mark Twain. I think he is one of the most insightful and uh, f one of the funniest American authors that's ever come out of our, our nation, out of our culture. But he was a, an outspoken critic of Christianity, especially the religion of the South that he observed and saw, its hypocrisy, its facade. But for Mark Twain, Christianity belongs in a museum. Think about this one. One must state it plainly. 
Religion comes from the period of human prehistory where nobody had the smallest idea what was going on. It comes from the bawling and fearful infancy of our species and is a babyish attempt to meet our inescapable demand for knowledge as well as for comfort, reassurance, and other infantile needs. This is Christopher Hitchens, a current day atheist and author, though he's now deceased. So these men, these particular critics, I think embody much of our secular cultures over the last several centuries, their view of the Christian faith. And it is men in our age, even our decades, like Christopher Hitchens, who have popularized atheism in the West especially. But there is this idea then, and th- the, not everybody buys into this, and not everyone that we work with and play with and study with would articulate it quite this way or buy into it entirely. But these are the cultural elite. These are ones that are forming the worldview of the society in which we live as God's people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter is here concluding this first section of his letter, and his theme all along here in chapter 1 so far has been salvation. We as the people of God, in exile, dispersed in the world, are in fact a saved people. We are a saved people. That is our identity It is our salvation that sets us apart from the rest of humanity. And it explains why we are not at home here. Why we don't quite fit. Peter begins with this identity because this truth is the foundation for faithful living while we are in exile. Especially when we are enduring our society's rejection. This salvation has already come to us. We are already made right with God. We are already set apart to him. The Father has already given us new birth. But for Peter, it is our future salvation that forms our identity now. Our salvation includes a promise, a promise of deliverance. A deliverance out of judgment when Jesus is revealed. And we see how Peter gets at this in chapter 1, verse 5. He tells us we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's all prepared. It is ready to be revealed. It is as though God and the heavens themselves have uh, an intake of breath And we are waiting for him to breathe out. We are waiting that closely for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, Peter tells us that we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And now he says in verse 10, this salvation Concerning this salvation, this future deliverance that God has promised and we have embraced with faith, 
It is a privileged place in history and in the world. Peter wants us to know that despite the world's rejection, despite its marginalization of us, despite any hostility that it may display to us, that to belong to God and to suffer for Jesus' name is actually an advantage, a great advantage. And he offers here proofs. First, first proof of our salvation's great advantage is the prophet's search. The prophet's search. Now, Peter is pointing back to the Old Testament prophets here who spoke with God's authority, declaring God's will to his people. And most often their prophetic words were rebukes. They were warnings. That if you do not return to the covenant, if you do not come back to loving me first, if you do not come back to obeying me, I will have to judge you. I will have to bring the consequences that I promised when we formed the covenant. And so the prophets stood forth before the people and they spoke these words and they warned them. And often those rebukes and warnings were joined by promises. But I will restore you. I will save. I will be faithful in the end. And these prophecies then pointed forward in time to future events and people. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and they are going to take you off into captivity. That is a warning, a rebuke and a warning, and it is a foretelling. It is a a prediction. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. And in the midst of all of these warnings and rebukes, as I said, were these promises of salvation. And according to Peter, the prophets themselves looked at their own prophecies And they recognized that God's words, the very words they were delivering to God's people, contained these truths, contained these predictions that they themselves couldn't get their minds around. They didn't understand what all of the pieces were to the puzzle that God was placing into these prophetic words. And one of those predictions was the grace that was to be yours, that that is us. That's another way of describing this salvation, this grace that was to be yours, grace that would include us in God's plans, in his purposes to save. And because they only had certain pieces of God's plan, they searched and inquired carefully which I think means something like this. The prophet Daniel, living in exile in the city of Babylon, would speak his words of prophecy that we find in the book of Daniel, and then he would, uh, then he would take out Isaiah's prophecy, spoken before the captivity, and he would take out that scroll or a portion of that scroll, and he would look at what he knew God had said through him and what God had said through the prophet Isaiah years before, and he would make notes and he would make comparisons. He said, well, if Isaiah said this and the Lord's Spirit is now saying this through me, then what does that mean? That would be an example. 
Maybe he took Habakkuk's prophecy that warned of the Babylonians coming and he tried to reconcile that with what he saw coming in the future when he saw the kingdoms of the earth laid out before him in prophetic visions. Years later, after the exiles have returned to the land, it would look something like the prophet Malachi, whom we studied several months ago. The prophet Malachi taking Daniel's record while he was in Babylon and Zacharias, a a contemporary prophet of his own, and the words that God was speaking through him and trying to put the pieces together, laying them out and asking the Lord, inquiring, what does this mean? What are you saying here? The prophets of old, Peter says, were especially intrigued by the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, his sufferings and his glories that would follow. This is what they saw as the centerpiece. They understood that these prophetic words were pointing forward to a savior, a king, someone whom God would send to deliver his people. And in fact, Peter says here that it was the spirit of Christ who was indicating these things, that was predicting that the Christ would come and his sufferings and his glory. And he calls the Holy Spirit here the spirit of Christ because Christ was at the center of all that the spirit was revealing through the prophets. And so the prophets are especially intrigued by this and they mostly want to know when. They wanted to understand when. Not so much Christ's identity, what would his name be? Or who was his family be? In fact, they knew that he would come through the line of David. I think that is something that was obvious to them. Because only someone from the line of David could be rightfully king. And they were looking for a king. But they are looking for when in the program would this take place? When would this happen? How would it happen? What would the circumstances be? And why sufferings? What does that mean? How could this Messiah King, this Savior King, how could he be subjected to suffering? And we see the same curiosity in Jesus' disciples, don't we? After he had risen from the dead even, he is... Uh, visiting with them. He is commissioning them. He is getting them ready for his departure. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we're told that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They understood. They had seen all of the pieces. They knew he had risen from the dead. They even, at this point, understood that there was something more to who Jesus was, his identity, and what him being the Messiah, the promised king, what that meant. And they are putting the puzzle pieces together. And they are saying, is now the time? Are you going to do this now? And in verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I think that's kind of the answer the prophets got for the most part as they searched and inquired carefully as to when these things would take place. What would the circumstances be for this Messiah, this Christ to come? 
But they studied it. They searched it. It was the driving force of their understanding of what God had revealed in their scriptures. They were preoccupied with it. So our salvation, this grace that is ours, has always been at the center of God's plan. And it has fascinated the prophets. They are searching for it. That's a sign that in all of God's revelation, all that God has spoken, in all of his workings with his people in the First Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, at the center of it is not just what God was doing then, but it was always pointing forward. It was always pointing to something else. And Peter is saying that it is our salvation It is we, the people of God today, to whom all of that was pointing. This is what he gets at in this next proof of our salvation's advantage. And that is the apostle's gospel. The apostle's gospel. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them. So the prophets did gain something from their inquiry, didn't they? From all of this searching, from all of this studying, from all of this praying, all of this seeking of understanding, they did get something. It was revealed to them, what? That they were not serving themselves, but you. So the prophets, it was made clear to them that this did not have to do with their current day, their immediate lives and context and circumstances, but that this was something that was going to happen far off. They saw it afar off, and they saw you. Who's you? Us, right? They didn't get all of their questions answered, but they got enough to know that all of the benefits and all of the advantages of this salvation belong to a future people, not themselves, and Peter says that people is you, us. The when and the how that the prophets were looking for has now come to pass. That has come to pass. And they have been announced to us, declared to us. The promised Christ has come. He has endured the sufferings that they predicted. He has received the glories that were predicted by the prophets. And this declaration has come through those who have preached the good news to you. Now, this this phrase, preached the good news, is actually all one word. And it is the word, it is the verb of the gospel. So we have the noun gospel And this is the verb form of that word, which means those who gospelized you. Or really the word that we use for it is evangelized, because that's what the word evangel is. It is uh, uh, an English way of saying the Greek word for uh, the gospel, euangelion. Okay, so the, those who preached the good news to you, those who evangelized you, those who gospelized you... Those are the ones who have announced then that this has all come to pass 
in the gospel is the revelation and the explanation of Christ's appearance. It explains his sufferings and reveals them now to be the temptations that he endured, being 100% man, being human, incarnate. It has revealed that his sufferings included a torturous walk to the cross and then crucifixion, death on that cross. And his glories in the gospel are now revealed to be his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven to be at God's right hand, to rule and to reign as king. Those are the sufferings and the glories that the gospel now unpacks, that now reveals to us. And it is good news because his death and his resurrection mean the forgiveness of sins. His death and his resurrection mean reconciliation with God. Instead of being God's enemies, we can be reconciled to him. Peace can be made. And In the end, ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection mean escape from his judgment, which is sure to come. And Peter will not let us leave that part out of the gospel. That is part of the gospel. The gospel message is not just God loves you and Jesus died for you to forgive your sins The gospel message is, if you do not repent and if you do not turn from sin, if you do not receive the salvation and the refuge and the person of Jesus that God has provided for you, you will face judgment. That is also part of the gospel. So in this proclamation then, to us, that has all been unpacked. That's all been revealed And for Peter's readers, those to whom he's writing, those who preached this might have been others than the apostles. They may have heard the gospel from other preachers of the gospel, from other evangelists. But they bore the apostles' message, the apostles' gospel. That has been passed on from Christian generation to Christian generation. It is still the apostles' gospel that we preach today, that we bear forth, that we give witness to. So just as the prophets of the Old Testament were uh, were God's spokesmen pointing forward to salvation, so the apostles were God's spokesmen announcing and explaining this salvation. Just as the prophets were directed by the Spirit of Christ, it was the Spirit of Christ in them that was revealing these things, that was guiding and inspiring their words. And just as they were directed by the Spirit of Christ, so the apostles preached the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And Peter here is referring to the event at Pentecost 
Acts chapter 2, where the apostles are gathered waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had promised would come. I'm going to send another. I'm going to send the Spirit. You go to Jerusalem and you wait there. And so there they are waiting. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit arrives. He is sent and they begin to proclaim and preach this very same gospel. And so the prophets, directed by the Spirit of Christ, delivered these prophetic words, studied them, tried to understand them. This was the focal point of everything they said and everything they wrote, even to the point that they pulled them out themselves and said, what was God saying through me? What was he getting at? Tried to put all the pieces together. Then come the apostles. The Holy Spirit through them preaches the gospel, takes everything that is in that text that the apostles have, the same texts that the prophets were looking at, and explains it and reveals it to them. Jesus explains it and reveals it to them and says, it was all pointing to me. They then preach it and proclaim it, and now we have heard it. We are the people of God. And this salvation that we know is an advantage to us in this life and in eternity. So the third proof then that Peter offers is just this one little line, phrase at the end of verse 12, things into which angels long to look. That is the angels wonder. So we have the, the prophet's search, we have the apostle's gospel, and we have the angels wonder. Now, the Bible tells us quite a bit about what angels do, but it does not tell us much about what angels think or what interests them. We know that they are God's messengers. That's what the word angel means, messenger. And we see them in the Bible delivering messages from God to people. And sometimes those are Warnings, sometimes those are directions, you need to do this. Sometimes they are announcements, this is going to happen. Sometimes they appear in visions or dreams, and sometimes they just appear. But they bring God's messages to people. Sometimes they were sent to strengthen and to comfort people. Sometimes they execute judgment in the world. And think about Acts chapter 12, even, where uh, Herod, king of the Jews, gives a speech and he is celebrated by the masses and they begin to say, it is the voice of a God. And instead of giving God glory, he takes the glory for himself and he is struck down by worms, but it is that he is struck down by an angel. So sometimes angels execute judgment and there are many other examples But these angels make up God's hosts, God's armies. And we also see them in Scripture opposing demonic forces in the spiritual realms in spiritual combat. We know that the cosmos, the universe, is at war. And that Satan and his forces, his demons, those in allegiance with him, are seeking to undo and undermine God's will and God's glory, the angels are involved and engaged in that combat, in that war. 
And sometimes we're given little glimpses of that in Scripture. Ultimately, we know this, that angels exist to serve God and to worship him in the heavenly realms. In fact, there are some classifications of angels that that's all they do. Seraphim, cherubim, all they do is worship God. All they do is fly around and and proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's all they do because God is so worthy and so glorious that they have been created for the very purpose of doing nothing other than proclaiming it constantly. So we know that's why angels exist. The question is, why would angels be fascinated with our salvation? Why would they long to look into these things? Peter says they long to look into God's designs, his purposes in saving us. Well, it may be because angels cannot experience salvation themselves. Angels don't know grace. They don't experience grace because grace is God's sufficiency, supply, uh, for including forgiveness for those who have sinned. Holy angels do not need to be saved. They do not be, uh, need to be restored to God. And fallen angels that we also call demons cannot be forgiven or saved from everything we know in Scripture. And so they don't know what grace is. Grace is not offered to them. Grace is not needed by them. And so it may be that because they, they can't experience that salvation, both holy angels and fallen angels, that they long to understand. They long to understand how this works and what God is doing. And, and why would he ever, why would God do what he has done to redeem those creatures? Because they are other than we are in God's created order. I think the answer to that, and the angels know this, is that we, mankind, men and women alone, are made in God's image. Never are angels described as being made in God's image. It is people, men and women, who are revealed to be created in God's image. I think this is why the psalmist says, you have made us a little higher than the angels. But I think, uh, and certainly, angels would long to look into it because they have been closely involved with the events of Christ's coming. They announced Christ's birth multiple times to a number of people. An angel ministered to Jesus himself in the garden as he anticipated the agony of the cross. Angels were present at Jesus' empty tomb to explain to his followers that he was gone, that he had risen and gone on. So they've been involved in these things. They've been announcing it. They've been directing people from the very beginning, even before Jesus was born, visiting uh, Zechariah and telling him they would, uh, he and his wife Elizabeth would give birth to uh, John. They were to name him John. He would be the forerunner of the Christ, the Messiah. He was coming. An angel visits Mary 
and, is, and explains to her that she has been chosen among all of the women on the planet to bear the Son of God. And angels have all along, uh, they show up to the shepherds, they declare it. Angel visits Joseph in a dream and tells him, get out of Jerusalem, go into Egypt because Herod's gonna kill all of the infants, two and younger. So angels have been in this thing from the beginning. No wonder they're looking at it and trying to figure out with wonder and amazement, what is, what is God doing? But I think Angels long to look into the workings of grace and salvation mostly because God brings himself glory in the heavenly realms by unfolding his purposes beyond even the angels' understanding. The same way that he amazes us with his purposes. The same way that we look at the unfolding plans of God and we go, wow, this is beyond us. No one could have dreamt this up. Nobody could have created this. When God's mind is unfolded for us, his purposes and his plans, we are amazed. We are filled with awe. We are filled with wonder. And I think God does the same thing. In fact, I know he does. He does the same thing before the angels. And it is the grace that is ours. It is the salvation that they long to look into. They are amazed by. They are filled with wonder over. Because the angels are one audience witnessing the work of God and glorifying him in their amazement. The Apostle Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. He writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister... To me, this grace was given, and by grace there, he means that it was God's good gift and assignment to him to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now it is made known. This is exactly what Peter's talking about. The prophets are searching. They're trying to get at it, trying to put the pieces together. Well, now it's made known. And Paul is speaking here from his own ministry, but he's really describing what all of the apostles were assigned. They were to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in sending Christ, in Christ's sufferings, in his glories, in his victory, God is working out a purpose and a plan that he has intended to amaze not only us and not only save us as his people, but to bring himself glory in the universe from creatures, the angelic world, who would witness it all. They see it all unfolding too. And this was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all right there in the person of Jesus. But Paul saw himself as a spokesman, as the explainer, as the revealer of these things. And at the heart of it is the angel's wonder. You see, the world that we live in does not comprehend that the eternal purposes of God are being worked out in some little building over on the west side of Linwood. But they are. You are that people. You belong to that people. I would never say, you know, that we are the only people. But we belong to that people. That is our place in history. So our salvation, then, this grace that is ours, has always been at the center of God's plan. It's always been at the center of his purposes, the eternal purpose, Paul said. It was embedded in the prophetic words of God's spokesman. spokesman. It was revealed, yet it was hidden from understanding. Part of Peter's point to us here now to understand that point is to say this isn't something new. This isn't just made up. This has roots that go deep, way deep in the purposes of God. And we see them even spoken of centuries and centuries ago. And thus the, uh, God's salvation of his people dominates the unfolding of history. What does the world say is at the center of history? It's wars, the economics of nations and people groups before there were such things as nations, empires. What is at the center of history? What ties it all together? Like our world would even offer the idea that it's random. That has all just happened. There is no connection. We are just a dot in space. In God's purposes, though, at the center of all of history, not just Christian history. Don't think of there's secular history and Christian history. There is just history. Those who want to divide secular history from Christian history are those who don't believe in Christ. But at the center of all history is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in God's plans, in his purposes, we, his people, are in a favored, privileged, blessed place in history and eternity. So, if you have ever felt that because of our faith in Christ, we are isolated, or outsiders, or on the fringes of human history. I feel like that sometimes. I feel like the world and its so-called progress is passing us by. There are some things we can't be a part of, we won't be a part of in this world. Perhaps when we are tempted to think that we as the people of God are insignificant, do we really have much of an impact? It's crossway fellowship in the world. We are tempted to think those things. When we are tempted to feel on the fringes, 
We need to see our place in God's plan of redemption as he sees it. And we are right at the center. We are right at the center. We need to see it as the privileged place in history and in the world as God says it is. And again, this is the perspective that we must have to live faithfully until that salvation is completed while we remain in exile.